Once upon a time, there were four little rabbits. How old are you, Johnny? She asked. Sixteen. We few, we happy few, we band of brothers. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. A wise old king once said, of the making of books, there is no end. How true today. Of the overabundance of writing published each year, what's worth reading? The answer is simple. Read only the best. Come join the discussion on Just the Best Literature. Well, hello again, everyone. Thanks for listening in today. Well, I don't have any comments today, and uh, that's okay. But uh, now that we've started a new series, I'm expecting to hear some comments. So please send them in or I'll get a little cranky. All right. On our last podcast, Grant Turgeon and I introduced you to Herman Melville's two most fun and interesting characters in the novel Moby Dick. Now, for today's program, we want to continue our discussion of Ishmael and Queequeg as they spend time together in New Bedford. So, welcome back, Grant. Thank you very much. <laughs> yeah. It's great to be here. So, so basically, the first four chapters were about um, uh, Nantucket and New Bedford, but uh, there was a lot of other things going on. And uh, so, essentially, we're going to continue a little bit of that history, but uh, again, we're going to just show you how Ishmael and Queequeg developed this incredible friendship. So, chapter five, uh, again, some of these chapters are so small, but it's called Breakfast. <laughs> and and the, the thing is, uh, uh, all you readers out there, if you read chapter four, you run into a group of men from the Grumpus. And so they just came back from a sailing or whaling ship voyage. And it could have been three or four years. And uh, basically, Ishmael, he opens this chapter at breakfast, and uh, and he starts out by saying, and, and this is so funny, just so you get used to the character Ishmael, he, he starts saying right up front in the very beginning of the chapter, he says, he actually starts telling us that he thinks skylarking, and what skylarking is, is just pulling a prank or a practical joke on someone is great fun. And essentially he said, he appreciated how Peter Coffin skylarked him with Queequeg. <laughs> now, if you read chapter four, it doesn't seem like he was very happy at all. <laughs> well, didn't he? So he had the best sleep of his life in chapter four. <laughs> right. And then apparently that got rid of all of his grumpiness and terror. And he's just as cheery as can be when he sees the innkeeper the next day. Yeah. Yeah. He got so, over it. So the, he, the sleep helps, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah. He likes skylarking. Yeah. So I could see that I could see Ishmael probably doing that to people. Right. <laughs> yeah. But he is he's a slave, ain't he? <laughs> so so um, uh, but, but anyway, that the, the the content that that he gives, you know, the, again, remember Melville was a whale. He, he was on a whaling ship. But eventually he he actually jumped ship. You know, he he uh he didn't like it so much, <laughs> but but I think the whole thing is that when when Ishmael then goes into this whole explanation as as how you could tell how long a seaman was back in New Bedford by the shade of his tan, and so so you know we hear a little bit about the all the men from the Grumpus. So now at breakfast, all these well men on the Grumpus are now back, you know, at the Spouter Inn, and he's looking at them all. And he's analyzing how long they've been back to New Bedford by their tan. 
Right. And he said, someone really dark. He said, oh, it's just the, just the last day, probably. Just They've only been here a day. And then then the, he goes down through the shades. And then there was a guy that was tawny and said, oh, he's, he's got to have been here for at least a couple of weeks. <laughs> right. So, so uh, um, but but the point that, that he's really driving you to, and we talked a little bit about this last the last program, you can tell how long a seaman has been in New Bedford by the shade of his tan, and there's only one man you can't do that with. <laughs> Who is it? It's Queequeg. Queequeg. <laughs> <laughs> That's why he describes all these people. And it's funny, too, because the night before, he couldn't see them as well. So this, this morning, as he's all fresh and cheerful, he decides he's just going to stare at everyone at breakfast and just... And hyper analyze all of them, and then and then he gets to Queequeg, and he's like, "Yep, there's there's the anomaly to <laughs> to my uh, yeah. quick survey here of, of all the tans, yeah. because Queequeg is splotchy purple and yellow colored with black checkered tattoos all over. Yeah, so he looks totally different. You could find some Queequegs today if you really look hard enough, and maybe sometimes you don't even have to look hard enough, because <laughs> we were at that water park, uh, you know, with our grandkids. And there were people that would had full body tattoos. Oh yeah. I mean, I've never seen anything like that in my life, and so it it, it is almost like it changes skin tone or skin color, or maybe it's just because there's so many colorful tattoos that you can't really tell what their original skin color was in some parts of their body. Right. But maybe that's what he's saying with Queequeg. I, I think he probably. I think they probably used um, coloring. Mm. You know, because I've seen the. Uh, it, 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 there's the history of um, Queequeg in the book, and I skipped that for the reading. But, uh, you know, like I recommend it to everybody out there reading, you should read the whole book anyway. It's just we have to get, get on to a new, another new series. But um, uh, I, I, if, if you look at the Maoris, I've, I've been to New Zealand, and, you know, a lot of the Maoris, they really believe that having your face tattooed is really important. And and I I imagine that's what Queequeg looked like. He looked more like the Maoris, with the, you know his whole face was marked, and they had squares everywhere. And so, so um, you know, it, it's just that's just a, a part of their culture. Right. Do you, so, do you think the purple and yellow part of that description was from the tattoos as well? I think so. Oh, I see. Okay. Yeah, because they I mean they would have probably they could have used color from fruit skins you know and all that so so uh you know that that's just a to me it's just something that i think um i mean just from a from a religious standpoint i think it's just something that satan inspires because he hates human beings because we're made in the image of god you know and so let's just color it up right you know? so yeah. i think i think that's what goes on well yeah some people if they like like you said if they paint their entire face i mean it it looks horrifying and you can't change it once right. you do it you know so so anyway the, the, the other thing i think is funny is and I, i'm going to read some of this we're we're at in my book we're at page 34 and uh i know there's different versions so uh for all of you out there if you're going to buy a, a, a really good edition i bought the penguin classics deluxe edition and it's really fab it's just a it's a work of art oh yeah it looks beautiful and uh the, th the thing is i really like it because the the words are big mm. i can read it <laughs> i can read it uh but, but the, the 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 thing is i'm going to read page 34 um it says um 
when, when everybody comes down for breakfast, Ishmael wants to hear about their voyages, and they're all quiet. They're not even talking. They're not a rowdy crowd at all, and it's it's almost like he's talking about the etiquette of the sailing sailor men. And were these the, were these men all from the same ship? ship? Yeah. So maybe they talked themselves out. Maybe they ran out of everything to talk about. Three years. About. Yeah. Three yeah. years. Yeah. But from Ishmael's perspective, he thinks they're just shy and awkward socially <laughs> right. but probably the reality is they had just talked about it, everything there is to talk about while they were on the ship together yeah let me just read this this is this is like the third paragraph down it says these reflections just here are occasioned by the circumstance that after we were all seated at the table and i was preparing to hear some good stories about whaling to my no small surprise, nearly every man maintained a profound silence. <laughs> and not only that, but they looked embarrassed. <laughs> yes, here were a set of sea dogs. Many of them without the slightest bashfulness had boarded great whales on the high seas, entire strangers to them, and dueled them dead without winking. And yet here they sat at a social breakfast table, all of the same calling, all of kindred taste, looking around as sheepishly at each other as though they had never been out of sight of some sheepfold among the green mountains. <laughs> he said, a curious sight, these bashful bears, these timid warrior well-men. <laughs> Maybe it's also possible they did, just didn't want to talk about work. Yeah. Sometimes you, you, do, you do your job all the time, and at the end of the day, you don't want to keep talking about your job because you're done with your job right. so there there are a lot of possible explanations or maybe just, they were hung over yeah it's just funny the way ishmael looks at it ishmael's ishmael's uh description seems like the least likely one that they're embarrassed and shy yeah these seamen really they're they're yeah. timid and bashful yeah <laughs> probably we, not yeah you know the the spotter in wasn't that great of a place anyway you know, they could have tore it apart probably in a second, you know, so so maybe they just figured it's better to keep it all together so they didn't freeze to death. But then, again, this is this is Melville setting us up. I mean, it's just great. He's setting us up, and then it's the next paragraph that is the kicker. I mean, it's the one that you really want to read. It says, but as for Queequeg, why? Queequeg sat there among them at the head of the table, too, it so chanced, as cool as an icicle. To be sure, I cannot say much for his breeding. His greatest admirer could not have cordially justified his bringing his harpoon into the breakfast with him and using it there without ceremony, reaching over the table with it to the imminent jeopardy of many heads and grappling the beefsteaks towards him. <laughs> so in other words, Queequeg has no table manners. <laughs> but all these lusty, you know, bearded guys were just sitting there quiet. <laughs> you know? He says, but that was certainly very coolly done by him. And everyone knows that in most people's estimation, to do anything coolly is to do it genteely. Yes, he did it. He did it smoothly. He was cool. So it seemed natural. Yeah. 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 Now he goes on to say, we will not speak of all Queequeg's peculiarities here. How he has chewed coffee and hot rolls and applied his undivided attention to beefsteaks done rare. Enough that when breakfast was over, he withdrew like the rest of us 
are arrested in the public room, lighted his tomahawk pipe, and was sitting there quietly digesting and smoking with his inseparable hat on when I sallied out for a stroll. So that's that's basically all there is to that chapter. It's a it's a basically a two page or so yeah. chapter. And yeah. it's just it's a masterpiece because it starts out with a contrast from how grumpy Ishmael was the night before to how happy he is after a good night of sleep. Yeah. And he's he's actually content with the way he was pranked the night before. Yeah. Then it talks about these bashful sailors and their complexion and and how awkward they are and and that and you think that's pretty funny but then it it's topped at the end by the description of Queequeg and, and with his harpoon just waving his harpoon around the table and 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 stabbing the stakes <laughs> it's all he liked it's all he wanted so anyway uh i i think that's that's a that's just a great chapter okay let's go on now we're going to move on to chapter six we've got to get through six seven eight nine all right so the chapter six again it's it's not a uh it's only a two really two and a half pager and uh uh basically i think uh, um what what uh what Melville's doing here is is you have to remember he wrote this in 1850 uh, it was published in 1851 and that's right before the civil war and um you know there's a lot going on in the country then especially interracially but but if you look at what he says here about this chapter and i think this is why it's so historical and it's like ishmael decides he's going to go out and walk walk in the street and essentially if you look at it he describes the international the interracial and the geographical aspects of new bedford and it's like a very cosmopolitan city and it's very well landscaped as too it's it's a beautiful place right it's like it's like an intersection where people probably from all over the world meet it's it's sort of like an airport today an airport you'll obviously be seeing people from everywhere yeah. and it's probably just about the widest array of different types of people and different looking people and it's pretty much endlessly entertaining to just look around at people in the airport oh yeah i'd love just to with do that. all the different people that are there so that's sort of like what these types of cities that were big seaports were back then where all these different people would converge in one place so people watching would have been quite the enjoyable quite amazing yeah yeah so, so let me just read a few of them that were there he, he said um he said uh in thoroughfares near the docks any considerable seaport will frequently offer to view the queerest looking nondescripts from foreign parts so he goes on to say that there were uh Oh, well, he says, Mediterranean mariners will sometimes uh, jostle the affrighted ladies. Regent Street is is not unknown to the Lascars, the Malays, and at Bombay, the Apollo Green, li live Yankees, live Yankees have often scared the natives, but New Bedford beats all Water Street and Wapping. In these last-mentioned haunts, you see only you see only sailors but in new bedford actual cannibals stand chatting at street corners savages outright many of whom carry on their on their bones unholy flesh so in other words they got the heads right on them so that makes a stranger stare but besides these the fijians the tongue uh 
Tangata Bowens, the Aramangoans, the Penangians, the Brigians, and the best wild specimens of the welling craft which unheeded reel about the streets, you will see other sights more curious, certainly more comical. There weekly arrive in this town scores of green Vermonters and New Hampshire men, all athirst for gain and glory in the fishery. They are mostly young, of stalwart frames, fellows who have felled forests, and now seek to drop the axe and snatch the well lance. Many are as green as the green mountains when they came. In some in some things you would think them but a few hours old. Look here, that chap strutting around the corner, he wears a beaver hat and swallow-tailed coat, girdled with a satyr belt and a sheaf knife. Here comes another with a sou'wester and a bombazel bomb bombazine cloak so he's telling he's he's really being nice about all of the internationals but then he's picking on the green mountain boys <laughs> you know they were they were pretty lusty men too especially during the civil war you know they helped win it so uh uh you know it, it's just so funny how he's describing new bedford the next paragraph down he says uh he goes on to say still new bedford is a queer place said had it not been for us well men that tract of land now notice he's saying us well men we don't know how many well ships ishmael's been on you know that tract of land would this day perhaps have been in a howling condition at the coast of labrador as it is parts of her back country are enough to frighten one they, they look so bony the town itself perhaps is the dearest place to live in all new england it is a land of oil, true enough, but not like Canaan, a land also of corn and wine. The streets do not run with milk. And so, so here he is, he's going to a Bible thing now. He's saying, look, this isn't the land of Canaan. It's not like the promised land. But, but he says there's milk isn't running down the streets. But if you go down to the next two paragraphs, he said there are reservoirs of oil in every house. So there's a lot of oil. It's not olive oil. It's whale oil. <laughs> so it's it's actually some pretty rough land, but there's a lot of wealth there because right. of the whaling right. trade. So right. that all the wealth basically cancels out some of the rough landscape. Right. And, and he talks about all the landscaping, and then at the at the end, towards the end, page 38, he says, And the women of New Bedford, they bloom like their own red roses. But roses only bloom in summer, <laughs> whereas the fine carnation of their cheeks is perennial as sunlight in the seventh heaven. Elsewhere match that bloom of theirs you cannot, save in Salem, where they tell me the young girls breathe such musk, their sailor sweethearts smell them miles offshore, as though they were drawing the odorous molochas instead of the puritanic sands. <laughs> so there he's picking on, he's picking on the founding fathers. <laughs> so anyway, I think that's, that's uh, he's giving you a little bit of history there. All right, uh, let's move on now to, uh, to the chapel. I'll let you, I'll let you introduce this one. Uh, yes. So he he sees um, what what are these? Are these are these tombstones? He sees right. all these. What They're are, tombstones. Yeah, right. he sees all these tombstones to these people lost at sea who'd gone down in the sea from from sailing, and yeah. and so it the. The story gets a little bit more sobering here, yeah. I would say. The, well, the thing about this is, it's like, if you think about it, when someone goes down at sea, you can't bury them. Right. You don't get their bones, you don't get their remains. And so you can't put a tombstone on the sea. So this place is like a museum 
for dead sailors. Yes. That's essentially what, what's happening here. And so, you know, if you, if you just read it, it says, I'll just, there's, he only lists three. It said, uh, sacred to the memory of John Talbot, who at age 18 was lost overboard near the Isle of Desolation off Patagonia. Um, it said the, uh, another one to the sacred memory of Robert Long, Willis Ellery, Nathan Coleman, Walter Canney, Seth Macy, and Samuel Gayleg, a former forming one of the boat's crews of the ship Eliza, who were towed out of sight by a whale on the offshore ground in the Pacific. So, so these are all people that died, mm. you know, in the in the whale industry. So, so here's Ishmael. He's he's coming in the chapel, and right. so, so uh, what's what's Melville doing here? You know, it's like I said, it's it's a museum. Yeah. But is is uh, he telling Ishmael, you might die? Yeah, and it's interesting because Ishmael seems pretty self-aware here when he's describing his experience. He's he's saying, well, you don't tend to get closure when when someone dies at sea. You don't get to recover the body. That's right. And you don't get to visit the grave site, and you don't you don't know where it's buried or anything. So it, it's almost like it's a lot harder for family members and friends to cope with death. Yeah. whenever a body is lost at sea. Right. So it, it seems like maybe he's okay with it because he doesn't really have a family, right? As right. far as we know, right. he doesn't really feel too worried about dying at sea, at least because he's not going to be hurting his loved ones as much. Right, and I think he's I think he's a little cocky, too. Yeah. And he thinks he's going to survive. And, of course, if you know the end of the story... He is the only one that survives. Mm-hmm. But anyway, there, there's another thing historically in there where he talks about the cave of Elephanta, and uh, in other words, this the, this cave of Elephanta was dedicated to the god Shiva, and it's it's a uh, it's right off of Mumbai. It's on an island, I think, and so um, uh, I guess there was a lot of um, you know statuary in the. It's like a big museum. And so, so you can see that that Melville, um, he had he did he did travel around a lot, and he saw these things. But but I think the the, the most important thing is on page forty two in this chapter, and it's it's kind of in the middle of the top the top paragraph. He says, "Why the life insurance companies pay death forfeitures upon immortals, and what eternal unstirring paralysis and deadly hopeless trance yet lies." antique Adam who died 60 round centuries ago. How is it that we still refuse to be comforted for those who we nevertheless maintain are dwelling in unspeakable bliss? Why all the living so strive to hush all the dead? And so so the thing is, now that's Melville wondering why do we worry about the dead if they're in heaven? That's a, that's amazing the way, the depth of thought there. Yeah. It's a, it's a great point. If if there is some sort of life after death, maybe people, if they understood that, wouldn't wail and mourn for so long and right. just let it tear their lives apart when death happens. Yeah. But obviously, uh, he's talking about heaven as if Adam is alive right now, which is not the case. Yeah, and I, I, I just wonder if, um, if, he, if he really questioned that. I mean, uh, that do we really, I mean... If you really read the Bible, it doesn't say there's a heaven right. we go to. And, of course, you know, we don't believe that. It seems know. like he's pretty critical of 
traditional Christians Very much for so. believing in heaven on the one hand to being so, so sad when people die on the other. I used to think that as a kid. Why are we so upset? They're supposedly they're in heaven. Don't, aren't they living a more enjoyable life, a better life now than they were? Yeah, so then, why are we upset? Then yeah. in the Apostles' Creed, we say that in, in the resurrection of the dead. And I said, well, why would, why would we be resurrected if we're in heaven? Who, who wants to come back? <laughs> you know, type of thing. So even a kid could think through some of that stuff. Yeah, you could see why some a lot of these writers, a lot of people are pretty critical of religion when even as a young child, you could tell that there were yeah. some pretty obvious contradictions. Yeah, I asked a priest one time if I, I was reading the Bible and it said that Christ had brothers and sisters. And he says, no, they were cousins. And I went, that's not what it says. <laughs> it says brothers and sisters. <laughs> I know my cousins. I had a lot of them. They were not my brothers and my sisters. It's not the same. <laughs> so It's not the same. So, so but anyway, anyway um, you know, it's, it's uh, this is the chapel where the wellmen go before they leave to go to sea because they know they may not come back, you know, so. so anyway. Those are some, really some brave men. So people who get into professions like that where death could happen at any time and they just basically set their mind to accept that and just go out and don't even hardly think about it. Right. Like you have to have a lot of respect for people like that. Yeah, yeah, they just have it. They have a nerve, yeah. as they call it, you know. All right, so um, uh, and anyway, uh, Ishmael is also... Uh, surprised to find Queequeg there, because remember he left him smoking with the with the Grumpus, <laughs> the, with the Grumpus crew, and so so and here he's a pagan, but he's in this chapel. Right, the night before he's grunting in front of his idol and, and yeah. making a burnt sacrifice yeah. to it, and now he's in this chapel. Yeah. So so the the the, the thing is, I think what you, what what all of the readers out there have to see is that that Melville really was confused about religion. And he was questioning. And I think he was driving for answers. And the same with Conrad. Conrad was driving for answers. And, you know, they weren't at a time when God was going to reveal it to them. And, you know, we, we happened to live in a time and with an organization that God decided, well, we're going to let you know what's true. You know, and it's, it's really quite amazing and how incredible to be here. Exactly. They had so many deep thoughts, as you can see in what they wrote, and yet nowhere where they looked could they find any answers at all. Because they relied on their ministers mm -hmm. to tell them, and they didn't know either. All right. Chapter 8, the pulpit. Again, this is where uh, Ishmael and Queequeg meet Father Mapple, and uh, uh, we, we can't read the whole chapter, but please those of you are listening read this chapter because one father mapple is really a neat guy but also the pulpit is in the bow it, made, it looks like a ship <laughs> and, and he has to climb the ladder to get to the pulpit <laughs> i keep trying to picture this yeah i would i would like to see a picture of some kind yeah, it, yeah if you go and look at some of the old drawings of say the old churches years ago the pulpit was always way above mm. everybody i know i went to a if you go to you know, Westminster Abbey, you see the pulpit and one of the rooms is higher, you know, and so, right. so that's just the way they did it. And, uh, uh, but, but Father Mapple was an old seaman himself. And then he gave up that, you know, to, uh, to sacrifice his life for, you know, the, the, uh, other people that had to go out for the other seamen. And so, so, uh, he goes up there and he has to climb up the ladder 
to get to the pulpit, which I think is really, yeah. really, I think it's pretty interesting. All right. Um, so let's talk now. Now, chapter nine is is uh, probably one of my most favorite chapters of the whole book. And Father Mapple gives an incredible sermon about Jonah the prophet. Right. He gave the sermon as if he was on the ship with Jonah when the storm came. And he w- it was like he was standing in between Jonah and the captain of the ship and heard every single word that they spoke to each other and, and their negotiations and how the captain was suspicious of Jonah's motives. It, it really was like an ad color speech all, oh, yeah. all about the Jonah story. Yeah. And the, the, I mean, t- to me, there's a lot of lessons in this. And of course, when we get this, we get into this, uh, you know, in class is, uh, you know, I really spent a lot of time with it because, you know, he says some amazing things in here. Like on page top of 40, page 48, he says, and if we obey God, we must disobey ourselves. And it is this, dis- it is this disobeying ourselves where in the hardness of obeying God consists. You know, and so, so what did Jonah do? And he, he goes in and he really, I mean, he really calls Jonah on the carpet in this sermon. I mean, he says, Jonah disobeyed God. God said, go tell Nineveh they're going down. And he said, no, God, I'm not going to do that. Yeah, this preacher is attacking our carnal human nature, too. Yeah. At least back then, they understood that the human mind apart from God is not some awesome, constantly progressing mind. Yeah. It's it's actually desperately wicked, as the Bible says. Yeah. So so Jonah was doing his own will, and by doing what he wanted to do, it was exactly the opposite of what God said, and that's how it is for all of us, really. Oh, it is. And the other thing he said, uh, he takes Jonah down, and he says, See you not then, shipmates, that Jonah sought to flee worldwide from God? Miserable man, oh, most contemptible and worthy of all scorn, uh, with slouched head and guilty eyes skulking from his God, prowling among the shipping like a vile burglar, hastening to cross the seas, so disordered, self-condemning in his look, that had there been policemen in those days, Jonah, on mere suspicion of something wrong, had been arrested ere he touched the deck. (laughs) (laughs) So he goes on, on to say later, how can you ever think you can flee away from God? Right. <laughs> you know, so, so anyway, uh, this is a, one of the longer chapters, but it is probably the best sermon you'd ever read uh, in your life. All right. So that is all the time we have for today's program. On our next program, Grant and I will begin discussing chapters 14 and 16, and then we will go uh, also to chapters 19 through 21. And so, so uh, uh, get reading. Don't, uh, don't, don't delay. Now, you can buy Moby Dick at Amazon.com. You may be able to find a good used copy at abebooks.com. I buy many of my books there because they're beautiful condition and cost a lot less. You may also be able to find a copy in your local bookstore, and of course, you can also check your local library. Please write me any comments you may have to jbl at pcog.org. You can follow jbl on Twitter at jbliterature1. You can also follow jbl on Facebook. Simply search for just the best literature. Now, until next time, keep reading. 
You've been listening to just the best literature on Trumpet Radio, 101.3 KPCG. Streaming online at kpcg.fm and thetrumpet.com.